Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. And um, I don't pick them, I just keep going. And I can't think of a more encouraging passage for us to look at this morning than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this doesn't encourage you, nothing will, right? And so let's look at John chapter 20, moving into the second to the last chapter here of our study through the gospel of John, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18, John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet descended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Father, we thank you for just the beauty of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and even now the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. Thank you for giving us the Gospels, and particularly this Gospel, Lord, to help us understand your Son better. And Lord, I pray that as it was John's goal in writing this book, and particularly this passage and this chapter, Lord, that people would believe that Jesus is truly your son and and in believing they would have eternal life in his name. 
I pray that your spirit would work amongst us even now, that if there's anyone here who is yet to believe, who's yet to confess Jesus as Lord and to believe in their hearts that God raised, that you raised him from the dead so that they would be saved, I pray that would happen today for your glory and your praise and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love reading or watching biographies. I find the stories of other people's lives fascinating and intriguing and inspiring. And every biography I've ever read or watched ended with the person's death and burial. I've never read or watched a biography that ended with the person's resurrection from the dead. Have you? If the Gospel of John were an ordinary biography... It would have ended in the last chapter. Chapter 19, verse 42, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there, period, end of story. But we know the Gospel of John is no ordinary biography because it tells the story of the life of Jesus who was no ordinary man. He was God's one and only son. And one commentator said it this way. He said the fact that John continued his account and shared the excitement of the resurrection miracle is proof that Jesus Christ is not like any other man. He is indeed the son of God. The apostle Paul stated it very clearly and quickly, mind you, when he launched into his great epistle to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle to set set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Interesting, that word declared, that Jesus was declared the Son of God, uh, is the Greek word from which we get our English word horizon, which means to distinguish or to divide. And in the same way that the horizon serves as the dividing line uh, between the earth and the sky, so the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves as the dividing line between him and every other person who ever lived. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead sets him apart from every other person, and I would even add every other religious leader In the history of mankind, no one else, no matter how influential they may have been or still may be, ever, has ever predicted their own resurrection and been able to accomplish it. Hasn't happened, but once. And on multiple occasions, as you know, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and rise again three days later. I mean, every gospel makes this point, and For example, Matthew chapter 16, we'll just look at Matthew for a second, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Chapter 17 of Matthew, verse 22, 
And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. It says they were deeply grieved. And then in chapter 20 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify, and on the third day he will be raised up. And so this was a common theme of of Jesus' ministry, and he was regularly telling his disciples, informing them of what was to come, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, not to set up his kingdom, but to be handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and be crucified but then he was going to rise again after three days. I don't know if it was because they, they just couldn't get past the, the crucifixion part. They, they heard the crucifixion, that he was going to be crucified. He was going to be killed. And it's like they just, they just checked out. They just tuned out. They didn't keep listening to the end. And, and the resurrection got lost in the translation, possibly. All they heard was crucifixion or death. And yet whenever Jesus was, was asked for a sign, to prove his claim to be the Messiah, he always pointed to what? His resurrection. In fact, in in John's gospel, John chapter 2, you may may remember this, uh, months ago, maybe years ago now when we started this, John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And this was when he was clearing the temple, cleansing the temple, and they didn't like him turning over the tables and driving out the money changers. Hey, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Soon, right over their heads. They missed the point. He wasn't talking about the temple, temple. He was talking about the temple, temple. It says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. You remember uh, back in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees asked him another time for some sign. Verse 38, this is Matthew 12, 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said, teacher, we want a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jonah the prophet? What are you getting at? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster or the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the miracle of the resurrection would confirm all the other miracles that Jesus had ever performed. The resurrection was the greatest miracle which provided irrefutable, conclusive evidence that he is God the Son. And that's why John, along with the rest of the gospel writers, ended each of their biographies of Christ's life and ministry with the account of his resurrection. Um, in John's mind, this is the final, ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. He saved the best for last. Oh, by the way, I've got one more proof. I've got one more piece of evidence. I've got, this is my ace in my boot, if you will. I'm going to pull this out, and uh, there's no denying 
who Jesus was. And if you remember, the, the, the whole purpose, John's purpose statement is here in this chapter, John chapter 20, at the very end, verse 30, therefore many other signs, again, therefore many other signs. So he's talking about, I'm talking about the sign of the miracle of the resurrection. This is the ultimate sign. Oh uh, yeah, there are many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is his closing argument, if you will, for this book intended to bring people to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this chapter, John explained how he came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead based on the evidence that, that he saw when he visited the tomb in which Jesus had been buried. And what he concluded from the empty tomb was confirmed later by the appearances of Jesus to him, himself, and to other followers. These appearances of, of the resurrected Lord Jesus in chapter 20 and 21, as we'll see, um, are really the crowning proof that Jesus is God's Son and the source of eternal life for all those who believe in Him. Now, if you know your New Testament a bit, you know that there are at least 10 appearances of Jesus between uh, His resurrection and ascension. So after He rose from the dead and before He ascended back to heaven, during those 40 days or so that he was here on earth, he appeared at least 10 times to, to multiple people. Uh, Mary Magdalene in the garden, we're going to look at that uh, this morning. Uh, the woman on the road, there was another group of women and they saw Jesus on the road. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples. Um, Peter, uh, Jesus uh, appeared to Peter and to the disciples, first without Thomas and then again with Thomas. Um, also, seven disciples or so on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. We, we see that in John 21. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, he showed himself to, or appeared to more than 500 disciples at once, probably, probably on a mountain in Galilee. Um, he appeared to James, uh, and he also appeared to the apostles, the apostles when he ascended into heaven. Now, that's a lot to keep track of, but just know that here in the Gospel of John, John uh, recorded or included four out of the ten appearances of Christ. The one with Mary Magdalene, the disciples without Thomas, the disciples with Thomas, and then the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to see those over the course of the next few weeks as we look at chapter 20 and 21. One note I want to make here is that Jesus appeared exclusively to his followers to confirm their faith in him as their living Lord. Do you realize that Jesus did not appear to any unbelievers at all during that 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? Why? Why no, why no unbelievers? Well, because the fact that he had risen from the dead wouldn't have mattered to them. It wouldn't have been any more convincing to them than all the other miracles that he had performed. We don't have time to look at it, but it's, in your, it's one of the application questions on your sheet this morning, and that is the story in Luke 16 of, of Lazarus and the rich man, and they, went to, 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 they died, and went, one went to heaven, one went to hell, and, and, the, and the rich man begged 
Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers. He had five brothers who were sinners and they needed to, be, they needed to, to repent and believe. And he said, hey, just, just send Lazarus. I mean, if they see a man raised from the dead, surely they'll believe. My ungodly brothers will repent and believe. And he said, no, they won't. Unless they listen and believe Moses and the prophets, they'll not believe if a man raises from the dead. They'll not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Jesus was prophesying what would happen, that even if he were to rise from the dead, people still wouldn't believe. Because at the end of the day, this is the ultimate proof right here, the Word of God. You either believe it or you don't. And so Jesus appeared to his disciples alone, his followers alone, and and these post-resurrection appearances had a revolutionary impact on his disciples. They went from a weak, cowardly group hiding in the upper room for fear of their lives to a group of strong, bold witnesses who it says in the book of Acts, Acts 17, 6, that they turned the world upside down. And as you read through the book of Acts and and the remainder of the New Testament, you see that the the resurrection and its significance became the centerpiece of apostolic preaching. And, and, And really, today, it remains the heart of the gospel to this very day. In fact, then they were they were needing to replace Judas after he committed suicide for betraying out of over guilt of betraying the Lord. They were having to replace him, and this was the criteria. They said in Acts chapter 1, we've got to pick another guy to replace, to replace Judas. It says, therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. doesn't say of his death, doesn't say of his life, doesn't say of any other miracle. It says he must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That was the main deal. From this point on, this was everything. That these men served a risen Savior and Lord. And so all four gospel writers, they they record these unexpected, and it was unexpected. I don't think any of the disciples were expecting this. And it was truly unimaginable. They couldn't even comprehend the possibility of Jesus coming back from the grave. And, and here in John 20, in these first 18 verses, we see how John shared his own personal eyewitness testimony as the first person to believe in Jesus' resurrection. Do you get that? Our author here, John, was the first person to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He says that in the text, along with the testimony here of the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection. Interesting how John uh, was very picky and choosy, right, when it came to what he included in his gospel. So he figured, hey, I'm going to just include the the first one to believe in the resurrected Lord, and I'm going to include the first one to behold the resurrected Lord. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look, for, look, first of all, at the first one to believe in the resurrected Lord. Verses 1 through 10. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the tomb, or excuse me, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. The first day of the week was the day after the Sabbath, which was 
from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, and so we're talking about what day? Talking about Sunday here. Uh, And for the Jews, Saturday historically was the day of worship and rest uh, in Judaism. But ever since this historic day, when Jesus rose from the dead, Christians have set aside Sunday as their day of worship and rest in honor of Christ's resurrection. If you ever wondered, why do we meet on Sundays and not Saturdays? Because Jesus is alive and he rose again on the third day. He rose again on Sunday. And so guess what? Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. You don't have to wait to celebrate once a year that Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, every Lord's Day, every Sunday is, is essentially a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so originally it was simply called the first day of the week. We see that in the book of Acts, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, they would bring an offering on the first day of the week. And so the, the early church was in the habit of meeting together, gathering corporately like this, like we're doing this morning, on the first day of the week. Eventually, it became known as the Lord's Day. And John, the author of this gospel, also authored the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, he says when he was receiving the vision from God, uh, regarding the the future, uh, he said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That was Sunday. And so that's why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. It's His day. And the question we need to ask ourselves, is it truly His day in your life, in your family, or is it your day? See, See, the world has made it their day, haven't they? Sunday is just like any other day now. It's, it's their day. Hey, don't, don't mess with my weekends, right? My free time, my activities, my whatever, my... No, listen, today is not your day. It's not my day. It's the Lord's day. And so we need to make sure we're making this clearly his day, where he gets the priority. And again, that might look different for every one of us. I don't want to become legalistic and say, okay, we all go home and we read our Bibles all afternoon and take a nap because there's something spiritual about a nap on Sunday, but you can't watch TV, you can't read the newspaper, you can't go out and play, shoot some hoops or mow the yard, right, because then you'd be violating the Sabbath. Well, we don't have time to get into all that. The point is that Christ should get the priority on his day. It's his day. And so make sure that whatever you do on the Lord's day, that, that somehow it's keeping you focused on Christ and worshiping Him and serving Him. Well, it says on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, uh, translated here, Mary of Magdala, which is a village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago that the last trip we took to Israel, we were able to, to go to Magdala, and they had just uncovered this little town. And it's fascinating. It's a, it's a new excavation site. And uh, we got to walk along where they were excavating all this stuff. And they, they say, this is where this woman, Mary of Magdala, was from. And it was a wealthy little kind of hamlet on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we, all we know about Mary Magdalene is that she was one that Jesus cast seven demons out of, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She also financially supported Jesus. Magdala has um, ruins that, that clearly show that it was a wealthy little uh, region. And so she supported, along with some other women, uh, the ministry of Jesus and the disciples as they traveled from place to place. 
Now, according to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, she was just one of several women who had witnessed Jesus' death and burial. Again, we don't have time to look at this, but if you looked at Matthew 28, verse 1, Mark 16, verse 1, uh, Luke 24, verse 1, uh, you see that Mary Magdala or Magdalene is, is listed with a handful of other ladies, four or so other women. You say, well, why didn't uh, John mention that? Well, again, he's very purposeful, and he's, he's choosing to zero in on the woman who saw Jesus first, the first woman to see Jesus, the first person, I should say, period, that Jesus revealed himself to after the resurrection. And so here comes Mary Magdalene, uh, apparently with this other devoted group of women with burial spices, it says in Luke chapter 24, to finish anointing Jesus' body. Remember last week we said Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus stepped up to the plate uh, and they, they asked for the, the body of Jesus and they did their very best with the time that they had remaining in that, on that Friday afternoon uh, to get him prepared, his body prepared, to put him in Joseph, uh, Joseph's tomb. Uh, and apparently they weren't able to do everything that they wanted to do, and so it appears that these ladies were coming back with more spices to finish the job. And Mary, apparently, arrived earlier than the rest of them, because here it says that she came early to the tomb while it was still what? Dark. Uh, in, in the other Gospels, it says that the women came when the sun had risen. And so th- this was uh, Mary Magdalene. She was the ultra-spiritual, got to wake up before the sun does to have your quiet time, right? And uh, that's really spirit. No, she loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and-, and she wanted to be the first one there. And so when she arrived, she noticed that the large circular stone that, that Joseph had rolled in front of his, the, the entryway of his, of his cave-like tomb that he had hewn out, had hewn out for himself, he, he, was, he had poured that, that on Friday afternoon, he, he had rolled that in front of him, and now it was gone, it was rolled away. Somebody had rolled it back, and, and the opening was, was just there, it was wide open. And again, just doing some cross-referencing here, and comparing the, the, the Gospels uh, and, and harmonizing the Gospels, according to Matthew, at the request of the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, had authorized that the tomb be sealed with the official seal. Uh, and you know that so you can tell if it was broken, right? Uh, you put a seal on something and you know it hasn't been broken or tampered with. So they put a seal on it. Somehow they put a seal on that, on that big stone. Uh, but they also put guards. And again, this was the whole purpose of this was to prevent Jesus' disciples from stealing his body and claiming that he rose from the grave. That's why they did that. And yet God rolled the stone away through the means of a severe earthquake, the gospels say, and a couple of strong angels from heaven sent down to do the heavy lifting, right? I think it's important for us to understand something here. What's up with the stone being rolled away? I don't think it was necessary for the stone to be rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that people could get in to see that he wasn't there. We, we know that Jesus could have walked right through that sucker, right? He's, we're about to see him walk through a wall, walk through a locked door. He shows up, he just appears in the room. Well, he could have walked out of that tomb without that stone ever being moved. But this, is, this, this was so that people could get in. 
and see that he wasn't there. And of course, when, when Mary saw this, this was, this was shocking. This was scary to Mary. And so her immediate response was to go run and tell Peter and John. Verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So I can imagine she, she arrived breathless and blurted out, the, 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 the tomb is open and, and Jesus' body is not there anymore. And she, so she's assuming the worst, right? That the body had been stolen or had been tampered with. And, and so even though Jesus had predicted his resurrection numerous times, apparently the thought that Jesus had come back to life never even crossed her mind at that point. It was just so surreal. How, how could that even be possible? All she knew that Jesus' body was gone, and she wanted to help recover it. And so it says that when Peter and, and John heard the news, and again, we know this is, this is John, right? So, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his, hey, hint, hint, I'm talking about myself, but I just want to say it, you know, but I'm talking about me. And uh, so they heard this. And, and, and they instantly took off running toward the garden where Jesus had been buried. And I love this. And, and this, is, this is kind of funny. It's kind of some, maybe some humility here um, on, on John's part, but maybe not. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple, hint, hint, that's me, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John wanted us to know he won. He won the race to the tomb. It may have been that he was younger, more spry than Peter. You just kind of get this picture of Peter, kind of the big heavy fisherman, kind of waddling his way down to, down to, the, to the thing. I don't know what happened there. But, but when he arrived, though, John, just, he, he stopped. And he, didn't, he didn't go in right away. He kind of just stooped and he looked in and he saw nothing but the grave clothes lying there. Not so much for Peter. I love this. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So this is typical Peter fashion, right? Just bull in a china shop. Uh, as soon as he arrives, huffing and puffing, he, he just impulsively rushes headlong into the tomb. And the fact that Jesus' body wasn't there, but his grave clothes we're still lying there undisturbed. There's a point that John's trying to make here. He's ruling out foul play. Number one, he's saying, hey, just by the way, we, we, we came late to this show here. The disciples, we didn't know what was going on, so you can't blame us for stealing the body, right? And, and, uh, and besides, any grave robber would have either frantically tore off all the grave clothes and left them just in a mess, scattered everywhere, uh, strewn throughout the, the tomb, or they would have just picked up that wrapped body and ran. I mean, I, personally, I don't think a thief would have taken the time to unwrap the body. I mean, besides, it, it was easier and less smelly to transport a dead body that was still wrapped and, and spiced up like we talked about. And so I think the reason why John made such a big deal about the wrappings and the face cloth, and you're like, man, he's given a lot of space to the detail there. He, he, he just wanted us to know that there was no evidence of a crime. This was not a crime scene. In fact, some commentators suggest that the linen wrappings were still in the shape of Jesus' body, much like a, an empty cocoon, uh, 
left behind by a butterfly that recently emerged. You, you, we've all seen the cocoons, right? It's just like it's still the perfect shape. And the butterfly broke out. Now, we don't know that for sure. We do know that Jesus' body, though physical and material, in other words, you could touch him and you could, you could put his hand, your hands in his, in his wounds. He, he could eat food. And so we know he was very physical, very material. He wasn't just a ghost. Um, and yet his body was glorified. And so that meant that he was able to pass through grave clothes like he would later appear through the locked room. We're going to see that in verses 19 and 20. Again, the orderly arrangement here of the linens and the, and the carefully rolled up head covering, it's almost like he, 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 he kind of took the head covering off and he didn't just throw it. He kind of like intentionally, deliberately wrapped it and just set it down. This is very purposeful, very deliberate action. Again, no struggle had taken place. And when John, it says, verse 8, so the other disciple would first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Here's here's John finally entering the tomb, and he's sizing up the scene, and he was instantly convinced of the incredible but inescapable conclusion. What? Jesus is alive. He's not here. He, He wasn't stolen, obviously. He's alive. This has all the evidence pointing to the fact that he was resurrected. It may have been that his mind flashed back to some of the memorable, more memorable statements that Jesus had made uh, earlier. We already read John 2.22, where it says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this about uh, the temple being destroyed, and three days later, it, it would be raised from the dead. Uh, John uh, chapter 11, the, the story of Lazarus, uh, John chapter 11, verses 20, uh, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And then maybe John 16, verse 22. Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And so these are maybe the things that came into his mind, but he, he believed. He was convinced. But his faith was simply based on what he saw in the tomb and what he had heard Jesus say during his lifetime. But he still hadn't connected the dots between what he had seen and heard and the passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah being resurrected. Notice what it says in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So John's initial experiential faith in Jesus' resurrection, was later confirmed by Jesus through the objective truth of Scripture. I love, this is probably my favorite resurrection passage, the, the account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, he says to them, when they just, they, they just weren't getting it, they were being knuckleheads. And, and, and so he says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into glory? And it says, then beginning with Moses and with the prophets, all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. I love this, verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? 
And then later on, when he met with all the disciples in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, it says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again for the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. By the way, you may ask yourself, well, for yet, it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again for them. You're saying, well, was there a specific scripture? Or is he talking in general? I think he was talking in general, but there is a specific scripture. Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That is a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus himself had often foretold of his resurrection, but the disciples wouldn't accept it. And they weren't able to understand it until after he actually rose from the dead. And it says here in Luke that he opened up their minds. And yet by the time that John wrote this gospel, he and the other disciples, man, they were locked and loaded. They got it now. And they fully comprehended what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the Messiah rising from the dead. I think this is a, a good place to pause and just to remind ourselves here that our salvation depends on not just fully comprehending what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There may be some of you that you know all the details, all the facts, all the verses, all the cross-references. You understand the resurrection of Jesus, but you also need to openly confess that you believe that and that, and that you truly commit your entire life and eternal destiny to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way that I can have eternal life is because I serve a risen Savior. That's what it means to believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God what? raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Anyone who refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Lord or denies that he rose from the dead will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell. That's why John said, in John 11, verse 25, he quotes Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? My question for you is this this morning. Do you publicly profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you willing to get up and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was a son of God who came to earth as a virgin born of Mary, lived the perfect life that I could never live, died the awful death that I should have died, and he rose again from the dead, and it's only through faith and believing in Christ's work, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that I could be made right with God, that I could be forgiven for my sin. 
that he paid the price for my sin through his life and his death? Do you publicly profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And do you actually believe that God raised him from the dead? I mean, do you actually believe that? Really? You actually believe that? Are you kidding me? I say that because for a lot of people in this world, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense. And as we'll see next week, that's what the disciples thought. That when Mary eventually made it back to the disciples and said, hey guys, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. And they said, Seriously, Mary, that's crazy. That makes no sense. They thought, they thought it was just a bunch of nonsense. This is the disciples. This is the followers of Jesus thought it was a bunch of nonsense. Why should we be surprised when those who don't follow Christ, in fact, who hate Christ, who love their sin, wouldn't find this to be a bunch of nonsense too? Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged when you're out there trying to publicly profess faith in Christ, trying to make known the, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and people laugh at you, like roll their eyes at you, and go, seriously, you believe that? you got to be kidding me. It's okay. The Bible is very clear. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. Period. End of story. And so I'm just going to stop there. I plan to go all the way to verse 18, but I think we're just going to stop there and let, let that soak in our hearts and minds because, hey, guys, we're, we're getting close to the main point. We're almost there. The end of this chapter is it. Many other signs. Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Guess what? You got 31 more verses to make it happen. Seriously. You got 30 more, 31 more verses to figure it out. Are you going to believe in Jesus or not? Because once you get past verse 31... What else are you going to come, what else is going to convince you than the gospel of John? I don't know what it would be. It doesn't get any better than this. There's a reason why this gospel has been traditionally the gospel that has been given away when there's outreaches and, 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 and community outreaches and, and, and people groups where a, the Bible is translated into the language and they only can do a certain part of the scripture. And guess what? They always translate the gospel of John. How many times have you told somebody, maybe a, a new believer or a young believer, or maybe even an unbeliever, and they said, well, I, I, I want to read the Bible. I just don't know where to start. And you've said, start where? Gospel of John. The point is, hey, if you're not a believer here, you've had a few years here to, 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 to hear all this stuff, you're running out of time. And so, John is bringing the heat now. He's bringing the ultimate proof, the ultimate evidence, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this 
short little sermon, it seems, this morning, but trusting you that you're going to use it for your glory, Lord, because the gospel has been preached and, Lord, the resurrection of Jesus has been put before uh, people, and we know that ultimately, Father, that if, if, if they don't believe, um, if people don't believe that, that you raised your son from the dead, then they'll never be saved. And Lord, I, I, you know I'm being facetious and saying they got to figure it out and they're running out of time and they, they got to do it. And we know that ultimately it takes spiritual illumination. That ultimately, unless your spirit opens up blind eyes and unclogs deaf ears, they'll never believe. And so I pray that, Lord, if there's anyone sitting here and, and, and really grappling with the truth of the gospel, whether or not they should take the narrow road or stay on the broad road, Lord, I pray that if anything, they will just leave here today begging you for grace and mercy to grant them repentance and faith. Well, because we know that none of us can ever figure it out on our own. None of us can fix it on our own or do it on our own or save ourselves. But Lord, you do command us to to repent and believe. And so I pray that you would grant us that, Lord, those who need it today, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.